The views and opinions expressed by A Little Bit Culty are those of the hosts and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. That's true. Any of the fire content provided by our guests, bloggers, sponsors, or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, business, individual, anyone, or anything. Unless you're abusing people, then I have a problem maligning you. Also, we're not doctors, psychologists, or wizards. We're just two non-experts trying to make you a friendly, informative podcast that helps you understand culty shit. Hey, everybody. Sarah Edmondson here. And I'm Anthony Ames, a.k.a. Nippy, Sarah's husband. And you're listening to A, a Little, Little Bit, Bit Culty, a.k.a. ALBC, a podcast about what happens when devotion goes to the dark side. We've been there and back again. A little about us. True story. We met and fell in love in a cult. And then we woke up and got the hell out of Dodge. And the whole thing was captured in the HBO docuseries, The Vow, now in its second season. I also wrote about our experience in my memoir, Scarred, the true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life. Look at us, a couple of married podcasters who just happen to have a weekly date night where we interview experts and advocates in things like cult awareness and mind control. Wait, 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 wait. this does not count toward date night, babe. We gotta schedule that, that's separate. So there's two days we gotta hang out? (laughs) We do this podcast thing because we learned a lot on our exit ramp out of Nexium, still on that journey, and we want to pay the lessons forward with the help of other cult survivors and whistleblowers. We know all too well that culty things happen. It happens to people every day across every walk of life. So join us each week to tackle these culty dynamics, everywhere from online dating to mega churches and multi-level marketing. This stuff really is everywhere. The cultiverse just keeps on expanding, and so are we. Welcome to Season 5 of A Little Bit Culty, serving cult content and word salads weekly on your favorite podcast platforms. Learn more at alittlebitculty.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to this week's episode with Tia Levings. If you've not listened to part one, put it in reverse. And if you're enjoying it, please do write us a review and make sure to follow Tia on the social meets and enjoy part two. Here we go. Tell us about that final That's straw. That's pretty powerful. You, yeah. you, final straw? Yeah, because you had so many doubts, so many things you that put on the show. That has to wait for the book. Okay, I have to That's wait for the book. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we're not going to... I can tell you about many other straws, but yeah. the final well straw has to, to wait. Yes. Let's replay that, that That's card. Let's replay that card. It is, it is, it is gripping. It is gripping. It is heartbreaking. It is empowering. It is all... I motherhood things. saved my life. I am here because of my mother. I feel the same way. Parenthood. Parenthood, yeah. yeah. Parenthood. It was huge for us in this yeah. whole thing. It allowed us to escape trauma. Yeah. And and, and reprioritize yeah. your values. Yeah. And when you can't value your own, you can't like you have you're so broken that you your own life, mm-hmm. at least they don't deserve that. Right. They need better. Yeah. And so, it gives back too. It does. But it's not the reason you do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the bonus. I don't right? know. Fundamentalism <laughs> has a way of taking what you most want for your life and using it to their advantage. So I always wanted to be a wife and a mother and I wanted those things for my life and they exploited that Mm -hmm. and they used that to control me. So, I mean, it makes recovery complicated because 
I wanted, I actually wanted a quiverful. I would have been okay with more children if I'd had a happy marriage, a safe marriage. As it was, I had five. That's still a lot of babies in 10 years. I mean, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of pregnant. We were also doing it. Yeah. 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 By doing this. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I guess I am. You are. Yeah. Yeah. It's a strong reason to do it. I want to go back to the Calvinist thing for a sec. I'm going through my like half-baked history when Mm -hmm. it comes to religion, but weren't some of our presidents- Calvinists? Oh, yeah. Every Presbyterian, you yeah. know, every Lutheran, every Episcopalian. Like our Cal- early presidents were identified as in Calvinists, Absolutely. I believe. So I'm Calvinism, not- okay, let's take it all the way back to its source. <laughs> okay, okay. Luther reformed the Catholic Church. He's, the Reformation is an actual historical event. Luther posted his thesis on the, on the door and said, Catholic Church has to change. And it became known as the Reformation. And then John Calvin became this prominent pastor who took Luther's ideas and built on them. And then you have denominations that come up around it, Protestants, because they're protesting Catholic Church. They use Calvin's theology as their doctrine. So this is the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, the Lutherans. Mm. I mean, these are people we know. And there are so many beautiful churches that care about people that have Calvinism as part of their tradition. Mm -hmm. They have no idea how it's morphed into this neo-Calvinism and new reformation that's happening in Idaho. They they would not know. It's a t- and right. if they when they find out, it's a perversion to them because people's faith is dear to them and and they didn't understand it. Like the puritanical idea has been diluted through time, right. and it, a grace is applied and Jesus is applied, and not everyone majors on doctrine and theology. You know, they don't know what apologetics are. They don't. They're not like that. Presidents, yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah. when you get down to ideological purity. And I always say fundamentalism is people putting putting ideas before people because that's what they're chasing. You get this, it's almost perverted because it's so pure. There's no room for humanity in it. Right. So there's well, a lot of dehumanizing. Yeah, there's no error in there. Exactly. Part of knowing yourself is, is hitting that adversity yes. and yeah. it's pretending to shield you from it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So when you have pastors today in like the Idaho tradition, it's the Covenant Reformed Evangelical Church, and they are claiming John Calvin's tenets and mm-hmm. they're they're claiming to be Calvinist. They're actually, they're using it for their own purposes in such a heinous, dark, mean-spirited way. Doug Wilson calls himself a cut glass Calvinist and his theology bites back. Like he wants it to hurt. And we're taught that discipline is supposed to be painful and life is supposed to be painful. And you're suffering if you're suffering good because that suffering means that you're becoming more holy. And so then let's make your life harder because then you can be holier. And your head goes there. Like wow. shouldn't be happy, shouldn't be easy. If you're depressed, praise Jesus. You're you're mortifying your soul. They mm-hmm. they have an answer for all of all that pain. There's actually a lot of similarities between your description of the domestic discipline. Yeah, domestic discipline mm-hmm. and the paddling in DOS. Yeah. I picked up on that when I right? read your book. Yeah. 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 It's the obedience. Yeah. Yeah. It's the obedience. And also that love is pain and yeah. all that shit. But one of the things that really stuck out yes. our forums were sermons. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and I never seen it that way. And also, especially you talked about how the cert when pretending you were pretending to be discourse, pretending to be discourse, but also mm-hmm. like when you were being disobedient and they were trying to address you and they were doing sermons and you knew, you knew that everyone knew that it was for mm-hmm. you. I know when yeah. I watched the vow, it's the first time I'd seen like a cult group that didn't have the religious component. And I was like, oh my God, it's the same. Yeah. yeah. It's the same over and over, which yeah. is why I love Stephen Hassan's bite model, yeah, because pretty... when you take that criteria and you apply it to something, you can see it doesn't have to have Jesus you know, anywhere near it. It, yeah. it. It's a good guardian at the gate. Yeah, it really thing. is. If you can go in and you can go, even if a group is doing it a little bit, mm-hmm. you know the force that's informing that a little bit. So it allows you to just kind of be sensitive to a lot of 
potential abuses, even if it's not full on, Mm -hmm. you know, you can see the precursors a lot easier, at least for me. When you look back at this time now, there's been some very obvious problematic things like the Mm -hmm. the hierarchy and multiple abuses of power. I also want to hear about like the control of so many things. Tell us about the denim jumper. (laughs) (laughs) So some of this is time and place. Okay. And, And this is making a comeback. And when I see it, like, in these clothing brands that I just like, why? Because I do love a good why? jumper. Oh my yeah, God. tell of me. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course you do. Okay. Denim is a cowboy fabric. Yeah. It, at the end of the day, it started as a cowboy fabric because it's practical. Yeah. And the denim jumper, like, or Laura Ashley was yeah. a hot brand yeah. in the late 80s and yeah. early 90s. And what are these? These are modest, floral, not form-fitting clothes. They look like Little House on the Prairie, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. Of course, women love them. There's a new brand. It's called Christy Dawn. They're all like... I'm floating through a field of flowers with my sun hat (laughs) and I'm so feminine. And I know exactly who's buying that shit. Mm -hmm. It's the same people who buy drowning dresses as their bathing suits because they feel like they have to be covered from head to toe. It's just the Christian like version of the burqa. Mm -hmm. And the the (laughs) denim jumper, my my book was called The American Burqa for Nine Drafts. It didn't age well. But back in the (laughs) early 2000s, when we were going to war with Afghanistan and the Christians were all so mad about what was happening with the fundamentalists in the Middle East and these poor women and they're walking through the desert with these slits for their eyes and they were so mad about the burqa. And I was like, I wear a denim jumper because this is my uniform because you told me, they told me that my two-year-old would be turned on if I wore jeans. I needed to only wear dresses. We only wore dresses when you change sizes and you're breastfeeding and you're pregnant and you don't have a lot of money for clothes. What do you wear? You go to buy the Butterick pattern and you sew some denim jumpers. Or remember, remember these were hot in the 90s, the long, straight denim skirts. They're like head to toe. I saw one online yesterday because <laughs> they're coming back, because they're practical, because they're comfortable, because they're slenderizing. But they're also really convenient for fundies to buy. So they stitch the slit because you can't, you know, show anything up here. So you can't really walk in them without the slit. <laughs> they stitch it up. And 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 yeah, that's so much. You just control. hide your body. Yeah. yeah, you hide everything. But legally, exactly. It's yeah. it's the style. It's like you still want to wear what your friends are wearing. Like they're like at the, yeah. those, those girls are still they still care about pretty, mm-hmm. and so they have like the big hair. And Gothard has a hairstyle. That's why all the fundies have like the big wavy hair because he has a. You don't want your hair to be too curly because it's unruly. That shows a rebellious spirit. Mm-hmm. You don't want it to be too straight because that's plain. So he likes an angelic wave. And the Gothard girls all have the angelic wave of their long hair. And there's verses to back all this up. Gothard's thing was like he'd he'd decide something that was his preference or his his goal. And then he would find a couple verses that back it up. And then he would pair it with some anecdotes that no one can verify. We're familiar with that process. Oh, Keith Raniere and Belle Gothard have so much in common. (laughs) It's uncanny. It's uncanny. But it's also a type. Like, they're different type. types, though. I know we're bouncing around a little bit. Before you left, it was clear that your writing mm-hmm. saved you. And there's a quote I wanted to read. Mm. Between the lines in the white spaces between words, thoughts niggled at me the way an itchy tag scratches. But it would be years later in therapy before I realized the discomfort was called complicity. By spinning a pretty image, I was becoming guilty of selling the very dream I longed to escape. In your blog. That's the first time anyone's read back to me. <sighs> How was that? I have chills. (laughs) And also, yes, that's exactly what was happening. Mm -hmm. Complicity is so Mm -hmm. hard. It Mm -hmm. it silences you so much because you have so little self left and it requires trust and self to be able to say something embarrassing about yourself, to say something shameful, to admit to a fear of rejection that's going to come back at you when you admit. And sometimes it's real consequences. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, 
in y'all's case, there was a real court battle happening. Mm. And if you sign up to say, I did this, you know, you're, there's real consequences that can stem from that. So it was one of the things that kept me back to a point. And then it was also the thing that was like, okay, wait a minute. If I say it, I'm turning the light on the dark room. If I'm, if I can be courageous enough to turn on the light, then there's no more shadow and they don't benefit because they're benefiting from all that darkness. Mm -hmm. Us all staying quiet, the oppressors are the ones that win. And all it takes is a few brave souls. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite quotes is that when a woman tells the truth, she creates space for more truth to be told around her. And that's what happens online. I tell my story and people gasp and then they tell theirs and Mm -hmm. boom, like this is systemic and it is common and it is happening. And even the spanking story, I mean, as hard as that is to have that story in there, no one knows it's happening because everyone's too mortified to say that it happened to them. And that's why it keeps going. Yes. I mean, you have to be able to relate because of the brand. Like Mm -hmm. the brand is like, it's a private thing. And then by making it public, you diffuse some of that power and you allow others to say me too. Yeah. And I mean, what am I here for? It's undeniable. Exactly. That was the beauty of that movement. Mm -hmm. It really was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And put the burden of the squirm on the guilty. It took the shame off the victim. Yeah. That's a good shift for people to to understand that, yeah, some people are going to judge and and all that stuff, but the people you want to appeal to don't really punch down. Right. 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 I center survivors always because it's not just about my story. Mm -hmm. My story is a gate that others can open and and share theirs. And the power and the numbers is what leads to change. All of that awareness is Mm -hmm. what leads to change. So, yeah. I think people that come in contact with you will get that wisdom. I hope. I hope they get a graceful place to sit and hug. I'm a mom, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mom. Well, you, you're in, it's, you're obviously in your power. Yes. Part of your life. Yes. Right. I, I took back, yeah. I took back what was dear to me. And, and it's palpable and you're talking, you're yeah. talking about it from a, a really good place. That's what 10 years of trauma therapy yeah. will do. This is the golden age of cult recovery. The more we speak up and share our stories, the more we realize we are not alone. Your voice and your story can empower others. This is Sarah, and I'm proud to be a founding collaborator of the hashtag I Got Out movement. Learn more at igotout.org. Obviously, the book, we want people to read it. What, what, do you, what do you feel like comfortable sharing in terms of how you got out of this situation and how your writing saved you? Well, my writing, because mm-hmm. my writing had been my undoing, I was excommunicated for my writing. And my salvation, it became the thing that helped me process. I know it's words are one of my superpowers. And I just came to a place in my life where it's going to pour from me anyway. Make sure that I'm using it for the right reasons and the right, and the right good. Call it staying in your lane. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, how, we're not going to tell the story of how you woke up. But right. what, what do you want to share about like, I mean, you well, left, so you left the marriage. Because right? I, yeah. because I love the internet so much and mm-hmm. because I have a knack for it, mm-hmm. I did everything, you know, first. So when blogging became a thing and blogging was like, here's, there's this thing called a web blog and you can journal online. And I needed to share my life in Tennessee. We had moved to Tennessee at this mm-hmm. point to be in this cult group that is very high control denomination. It's a Doug Wilson's church. It's his own denomination. And I didn't realize I was joining a wife spanking cult, but that's, that is what it is. After we were in and after we were joined, I realized the whole congregation participated in corrective discipline in one way or another. So, well, I cannot go on the record and say everybody spanks their wives at the church. It's all physical, corrective they discipline. They all know about it. It's all physical? No, I don't know that all okay. of it is. 
I know that it's openly talked about that everybody believes they're like minds. That's the code word. We're in a fellowship of like minds. We were all reading the same books and they were teaching the same things. And the pastor and all the men were allowed to talk and the women were not allowed to talk. So that's what I can say that I know for sure. I had every reason to believe that every congregant was having the same home life that I was having. And they did not want the women to get together because we might compare notes, gossip, they call it gossip, but um, I like that good trouble. (laughs) It's like getting in the good trouble. So I started a blog to keep my grandma updated about our life in in life in Tennessee because I was taking the kids through the mountains and orchards and, you know, fun things to take pictures, lifestyle honing, lifestyle curating. And I had this big blog living deliberately had 60,000 hits a day for a couple of years. And it's because, you know, this is before algorithms. And I, and like I said, I had a knack for search volume and search presence and keywords and I reviewed some Oprah books that got traffic and then, you know, the blogs were starting. So like Pioneer Woman started that year. Somewhere in there, Glennon Doyle starts with Momastery. I think hers was closer to 2007 though. And there's somebody else that was, oh, her notes from the trenches. So like we had like these like blog posts, like readers, blog readers, where we would, you know, read each other's blogs and they were called RSS feeds. I mean, I'm using some outdated yeah. language yeah. and stuff, but I remember looking at those and having no clue what they were. What they were. Well, I I knew how to figure all that out. And so my blog, I started to bifurcate. You mentioned I had like a split personality. I really bifurcated at this point because I had like this career success, unintended career success happening in the most high control, dangerous situation of my life where I was not even supposed to have a voice. And I'm sharing my personal writing. I'm not allowed to write outside of my husband's name. So the first time I get in trouble is because I'm writing in my own name. And that's no, no. And I'm representing my family as a woman. That's a no, no. So we had corrective church discipline type scolding appointments for both of those. And then I go through this huge personal despair journey that lands me at the library, looking up all these world religions. And I blog about Eastern Orthodoxy, which venerates a woman because the Holy Theotokos, Mother Mary is a woman and men venerate her. They And venerate, you don't like... That doesn't happen in Protestantism. We don't, I <laughs> just, the irony is that they venerate the men, but, <laughs> but outwardly they don't worship any, anyone other than Jesus. Venerate is worship? Worship. Okay. Yeah. So I wrote how different men were, men who venerate a woman are different kinds of men because I can, I noticed, we visited an Orthodox parish in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and I noticed the men who go to St. Anne's church and they pray to Mary and they understand that females can obtain sainthood. That's a different kind of man than any kind of man I've ever encountered. These are not toxic men. These are kind hearted men. They are men that respect women mm. and women have identities and names and we know them thousands of years later. And I wrote about it and that was it. <laughs> I got in so much trouble. Is that where you got excommunicated? That's where I got yeah. excommunicated. Wow. And the, the little saving grace there was that my husband, Alan, at that time, he was tired of being told what to do as well. He didn't like being in a patriarchal church where he was told what to do. And so he was ready to buck their system. And so we actually went through that excommunication feeling unified. And I thought things were going to get better. Really did. Because when you're in this kind of situation, you're always waiting for the magic thing that's going to like, it'll be better then, or it'll get better. If I just persevere, if I just hang in long enough, you know, I don't want to quit before the dawn. It's Mm going to get better. And it did for a little bit. Like I thought, okay, we're on the same page. We're both going to get excommunicated and he's going to like basically tell the pastor off and <laughs> we're going to have this new life. We're in this agrarian environment in Tennessee. We're going to have our chickens and our goats and we're going to do the thing. And all of this was worth it. 
And the opposite happened. He flipped some kind of mental switch in his head. And we had seven months of the darkest hell I've ever lived in. We almost died multiple times. And he thought he saw demons in the walls. And it was all spiritual warfare. We weren't allowed to go to the doctor or anything like that. Because we were still fundamentalists in our heart. He still has his trauma too, Yeah, we still had all of that. And he has significant mental illness that just needs treatment. It just Mm. needs doctors. Just, you know, but you're not allowed to do any of that. Mm -hmm. It's not in your wheelhouse of... Did he ever get diagnosed? Resources. Yeah, he's been diagnosed. And in the fallout and the aftermath, a lot has been happening like with mental health. And I wouldn't, I, I would say he's in a quiet, distant place now. He's mm-hmm. not a threat to me that I believe, but he's also, I wouldn't, I never know how to describe it. A simple life is better for him. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he has a simple life and it's a way. So that's good. Does he still see the kids? No. They try to have a, a relationship, mm-hmm. you know, in their way with him. But it's very hard and complicated and also mm. their own because they're all adults now. He's never had any visitation or custody or anything mm. like that, all because of what happened in the aftermath of me leaving. Mm-hmm. So when I do leave and I get out, I have my writing to fall back on. And I had friends who were trying to get me to teach them how to do this blogging thing in their business. So suddenly I'm a consultant. I'm a business consultant and I have a business and an income. And it led me to a job opportunity with a Tony Robbins company. And now I have a division of writing services and a career. And it, it, you know, it's taken the 15, 16 years to build it, but it's because I'm good with words on the internet. I mean, <laughs> that's great. I don't, I mean, there's no college in my story. And and then anyway, the things I do now, there wasn't college for now. Now people go to college right. for social media management, but yeah. they didn't know that then. Is your Instagram following from your blog? Like, the, or is it? No, so you started I again? closed that blog about the first year that I was free. It didn't feel like a good space to have open anymore. Mm. And then shortly thereafter, Google released their Panda algorithm and the world of blogging changed. What does that mean? It was an algorithm that valued search. It had a different way to measure the search and Uh. promote the search. And so a lot of sites that had had this really big search presence and traffic took a hit. And as the internet settled out, and now they release new algorithm updates all the time, but Mm. that was their first one. And it's known as the Panda. (laughs) And I don't understand all of it. All I know is that my traffic plummeted and at a good time (sighs) because I needed an out. I needed to get out of that space and start my life over. Mm -hmm. I met husband 2.0 and I fell in love and I had, I got to know what love and chemistry feels like. Mm -hmm. I got to know what it was like to choose a spouse of my own volition. I raised my children in a stable environment for the rest of their upbringing, and none of them are fundamentalists. They're all free thinkers. Getting out for my children's sake was worthwhile, worthwhile, because they're all free and they're all pursuing their own interests. Have they read your book? My oldest has. I don't want them to until they're really ready. <laughs> yeah. And it's like they have their version of their childhood, mm-hmm. and this is an adult window. And while they are adults, there's a, a psychological maturity that means when you when you align with your parents' experience that I think really needs to be on them to be feel ready mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I always tell my family, I've you know, I've gone through every well put, yeah. every measure I can to protect your privacy, change your name, make this not something that is a part of your life and you can interact with it as you want to. It starts with, you know, like asking their consent to have their pictures online. Like my generation is the one that learned yeah. what the internet was and we didn't ask for consent, no. you know, when we were putting our kids out there. But now we're mindful of facial recognition and autonomy and I don't post my kids. I know you said 10 years of therapy to give us some like nuggets of (laughs) what what you've done to get to where you are now. Yes. Name a modality and I've probably tried Mm -hmm. it, but basically I became a bulldog for my health and reclamation. Mm -hmm. I want my life to, I want it to be mine and I don't Mm -hmm. get my years back. You used a phrase actually in one of the episodes 
I don't know if it was like the dumping of the years or it was the emptying out emptying, of their time. Yes. And we don't get it back. There's yeah. like, there's, so there's one a commodity you have. It, and they took it. They took my youth. They took my childhood. They I took, don't let myself go there. <laughs> it's, it's dark. I really don't. I really don't. Hard it's 12 years of my life that I just went boom. And I just tried to psychologically not go there. Are you on the 120 year plan? At least. Okay. Yeah. So I make decisions thinking that I am. <laughs> there is more to be than there yeah. has been. Yeah. That is what I hold yeah. all the time. There is more yeah. to be than there has been. Yeah. Because of my age, when we're all in the same range here, we can reclaim. We won't get that specific window of time back. The, the hard one for me is that I had to heal during my children's upbringing. And they deserved a healed parent. They deserved a healthy parent. And instead, I was going through all of the nervous system adaptation. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to regulate. I, I got very physically ill because the body does keep a score. So I went through a whole health journey as all that trauma had to like rise out of my body. Para paralysis, blindness. They thought I had MS, long-term migraine condition. All of that trauma manifests as real symptoms. And then, you know, the doctors try to treat the symptoms and that doesn't work. And then they're like, we don't think you're blowing up. And I'm like, well, that's all you have to tell me. If I'm not blowing up, if it's not cancer or an aneurysm or, you know, whatever, let me go talk to my therapist about it because I needed therapy right. to deal with the medical scare anyway. I was mm -hmm. having a hard time coping. And so that's how I discovered trauma therapy. Mm -hmm. And I started with EMDR. And then I did this method called brain spotting, which is a very unfortunate name for a very powerful technique. <laughs> <laughs> so EMDR takes you one memory at a time and you like reprogram the, how your brain remembers it so that you are kind of overwriting the body right. memory. Brain spotting Rolodexes through it rapidly in an, in a session. Mm -hmm. So you just flip file really fast through like where it's stored in your brain. And you talk about it and as you clear it. You are, you're like kind of in a um, sort of trans-like mm -hmm. state with a sound device, the same kind of device that EMDR mm -hmm. uses. And I used it for my <clears throat> biggest, worst traumas that I felt very paralyzed by. I had a stuttering problem. I was terrified all of the time. Fear of abandonment is like a root fear for me because I was told, you know, you're going to go to hell. <laughs> you're going to get wrapped. People are going to get raptured and you're going to be left behind, you know, as a small child. So I have some very deep seated stuff. And the big thing that happened in trauma therapy is I, I went there to deal with medical first and then my bad marriages. And I thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to deal with either the problems I'm having now raising teenagers with a husband who's much older than me, or I'm going to deal with this bad man I was married to. And I was still very binary in, in, in what, how I was holding it. And in actuality, we had to unfold it and say, okay, where did that come from? And where did that come from? And we get it all the way back into this thing called religious trauma. There wasn't a phrase for that when I started this, but, mm -hmm. and then I was deconstructing. That was a new word too. And mm -hmm. I was an ex-evangelical. I'd never heard that word. And, <laughs> and so like, as we found language for things right. and as the conversation broadened, I was able to trace like the root, why I got myself into that situation. Right. Why did I marry somebody like that? You know, it seems like a pretty obvious question to ask. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't obvious to me when I was mm -hmm. there. It wasn't obvious to anyone around me. They were all like happy for me and didn't question that I just met this guy, you know. Why did you? Because of well, the system I was in. Everybody yeah. was doing the same thing. We were mm -hmm. conveyor belting the, the marriages. Every yeah. Friday there was a new wedding wow. and they just changed the rhythm, uh, the ribbons on the candelabra and the bridesmaids dresses would be a different color and we would all have kind of the same wedding. And then about a year later, really? a bunch of them ended in divorce. And then those people are ostracized and leave the church. Wow. If you get divorced, your, your life at church is over. Now, remember, I was going six times a week and this was my entire world. I knew nobody outside of church. So guess what I'm never going to do? <laughs> I'm right. never going to get divorced. Right. And I'm not going to risk the jeopardy of my spiritual condition and go to hell because I got a divorce. No, it's my job to make it work. Wow. 
So, you know, just uncovering all of that Mm -hmm. and then coming back to that kid that was in the woods and being realizing that if I take my shoes off and sit my ass on the ground and I let it all be true for a second. And then I did. I let all of it be true. You were spanked. You were abused. You were complicit. I just let it all be true. I'm still here. And my heart is still beating. And I looked up and there were people who still loved me. And it made it okay to take the next step. That's how I got rid of the shame. And I am That's getting this. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. But that is, how I, that is how I did it. Because if you can get down to the simplicity of who you are, even though none of that shit matters. Right. Literally none of it. We are like people. All of us have been through really hard shit. We can share our stories and it doesn't have to be the thing that holds us back. And if it is holding us back, it's benefiting someone. Someone is thriving because we are not speaking. Hey there, listener. Hope you're enjoying this episode and that you're remembering to hydrate, stretch, and unclench your jaws. Sometimes listening to conversations about heavy topics can really make you tighten up, you know? And remember, a little bit culty loves you. Also, come hang out with us on Patreon after you finish this episode. It's fun over there. Fun is good. And now, here's a brief message from our sponsors. You know, I had a friend of mine say something to me when I was going through, not the extent, but similar flavor. Yeah. And he's like, look, do the people that know you, love you, and care about you care about any of that shit? He's Not like, does really. it matter like anything they read about you? He's like, is, is, it, is it gonna be true to any of them, whatever it is? And right. I was like, no. And I was like, that was it. Yeah. I was free. kind of free emotionally of my avatar online or any sort of like <laughs> Yes. Because they're they're yelling at something that's not me. Exactly. And it's I, I was able to see it that way mm-hmm. and relate to it that way. And yeah. then shame became kind of an indulgence more than you something had a that was real. In the journey. Yeah. That's, we were, yeah. we were That's bouncing something. stuff off too. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how I would have done it without him. <laughs> see, I love this. This is this, this, it's really shown through no, in the vows. Really? Like the, thing, the couples had the, each other. The thing that I haven't said to her enough, I don't think, is there was points where I was admiring her bravery because mm-hmm. it felt stronger than mine at yeah, times. Yeah, that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah. Like I felt, I felt like I wasn't doing enough, but then I was like, you know what? My role's here and like being comfortable, not being what I felt like was the braver one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We you had know. all those masculine messages to have yeah. to contend with. Too. Yeah. Oh, so much. So. Yeah. God, yeah. so much. This is so funny to <laughs> me. I mean, not funny, not funny. Like, because Keith is like not very tall and he loves volleyball and he's got all these like soft habits. And when every time there's footage of him laying on the couch, like a little mealy worm, I'm like, <laughs> and yet he's able to wield all this control. And this pressure, like the pressure cooker that all of you were in really came through on the screen. And and it's like the rudder on a ship, you know, like yeah. it's a tiny thing. It can just, that's the impression yeah. I got as a viewer. And then he's still, he's still puppeting through the prison when they're doing the lights. I'm like, you fucker, <laughs> who gave you a window? Yeah. Take this man's window away. I'm screaming at the TV. Oh, like, they took it away. How, oh, good. He's in, he's in solitary. I'm, oh, oof. Yeah. And you know that he did that just to like humiliate them further, right? Mm-hmm. Like dance outside yeah. my window, like, yeah, like depraved. Well, the deeper the humiliation, the harder it is to reconcile. Exactly. It's what's going to keep you loyal because right. revealing their secret reveals your humiliation. Yeah. And that's a really, that's a collateral and blackmail in and of itself. Yeah. It's one that I think when people have it, they don't necessarily know that's when informing their decision. It's a very difficult one. You have to take a real bite out of a shit sandwich to make that pivot. <laughs> You and do. that's your first step. And you then the, well, that first step yeah. is your first step to freedom. And if you can conceptualize that, all you got to know is you're going to get hit for a second and then it's going to only get better. It's true. I feel it's like. true. And if you can, it's like, like when you get your ears pierced or something, yeah. if you can get through that second, yeah. it is going to be better on and the other cool side. you're cool for life. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm allergic, so they're, they're not pierced anymore. But yeah, I mean, I remember. You know what I mean? Vividly. Metaphorically, it's Completely. like, it's, it's going to 
continually go better. And the more you hold on to it. That's what my moment on the floor yeah. was. Yeah. Because I had been carrying it and carrying it. And that is when people, like when they get stuck and they're so, like I hear from so many survivors that are, they're scared. They're breaking underneath the pressure of their secrets. They don't have all the language and mm. they, they, they're they not sure like, is it me? Is it my partner? Is it this projection? Is it this dynamic? I hear from a lot of parents. Like one of the reasons why I'm unique in my my little niche here is that I'm a parent who will speak about my complicity. Whereas a lot of survivors are children who came out right. of it and they're mad at their parents and they're cutting their parents off and going no contact. And, and I'm the parent that says, I chose this for my children. I read those books as a mother. Mm-hmm. My mother was not that way. My mother like gets alongside with my dad and they roll their sleeves up and they get to work and they expected a certain work ethic mm. out of me. Mm. They did take me to that church, but they took me there because they had good intentions. Well, they thought, principles. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Like here's a beautiful youth group. You'll get to go on ski trips. You'll mm. You know, you'll learn about Jesus. Like they really did think all the good things mm-hmm. were going to come and didn't know, like my, my pain didn't manifest the way they would have recognized. Like I didn't seem right. like a kid who was in jeopardy. I was the, I was the best behaved, right. calmest kid, you know, and the trouble I got in was my room was messy sometimes. Not, do they know everything now? They they read the book? They do. And yeah. it's, it's tough. My parents yeah. are still evangelical. They still love that church. There's a through line of characters in my life who would just rather I not talk about hard things, makes them uncomfortable. And I'm sorry to those people because living through it was so much more uncomfortable. Mm. I will take the relief and the light any day. Like I would so much rather sit here and have a talk about hard things over and over again on lots of podcasts Mm. than hide my secret because Mm. that pain was unbearable and almost killed me. So if you like me here, <laughs> let me get it out. Let me mm-hmm. let me get it out and where I can see it's changing somebody and it's helping somebody. Because literally every time I open my mouth and I tell the story, somebody comes back to me and says, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I relate to that. Yeah. You just told my secret. Mm-hmm. And I get messages from people that That's are like, I'm be. leaving my husband today because of your reels. Or they take my reels to their therapists. And I'm scared to death to make those reels. <laughs> 18 months, 18 months ago, Josh Sugar had his trial. And I broke, I broke because the Duggars were held up on this pedestal as this beautiful lifestyle and they were painting him as a bad apple. He is not a fucking bad apple. He is the fruit of that system. And there are more Joshes out there that are on TV. And there's also all this wreckage of people who are his victims or there are other kinds of bad fruit. And the only people who know that are the ones who've lived it too Mm -hmm. and come out on the other side. That puts me in a very tiny population. Right. I better open my mouth yeah. because yeah, they yeah. want to run the country You're the, the way they run their homes. You're the lightning rod. Exactly. What made you decide to like, where did you go from healing to be like, I need to be a public figure and talk about it and make reels and have that social presence? That's a little parallel too. I started writing my book 10 years ago as part of my therapy as a journal and didn't intend for it to become any kind of like platform or anything like that. I just was writing my story out to see it on the page. And then my therapist was like, hey, you have a story here. You should probably mm-hmm. think about writing a book and writing's always been important to you. So learn how to write a book. And that took a long time just to learn how to write a book. I had to hire coaches and practice and and learn, buy all these books on writing, which you, that's a hard thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> love, love craft books. So I had to learn how to do the thing as an uneducated person. And so I was writing the draft, writing the manuscript, and I took it to my coaches. And my coaches are like, you have a big story here. You might need to try to publish this. And then I got scared because like I, the now it's public, like I'm really going to make something of this. So it started as a novel 
I thought I could like tell it about somebody else. So I have this character named Shasta and she goes through everything. <laughs> and then that book came out, like, like the, I sent it to my coach and she's like, yeah, but it really needs to be you. <laughs> so then I was like, oh, God. so I'm doing therapy at the same time yeah. to like embody my story and step into it. So like there's, there's parallel growth happening and there's, this is a, you know, years, this is, yeah, yeah. it takes years. So drafts five and six are a novel. Drafts seven and eight are my first stabs at a memoir under a pseudonym. So if you ever like hunt me online, you might find Tia Lindstrom. I was Tia Lindstrom for a little while because I was trying to be this persona, and this pseudonym. And then I got a different coach and a different breakthrough in therapy. And I was like, I'm fucking owning my story, yeah, yeah. but I'm going to stay an author. I'm not going to be public. I like had like maybe a thousand people on Instagram and... And it was just like the things that I love, like food and wine and dirt and skies and nature, you know, fun stuff. And I wasn't going to be public. I was going to do the writer thing. And probably my book, you know, would I'd have a few shows and a little table and I maybe would like pass out a few copies, that kind of thing. No big dreams. No big dreams. The Josh Duggar trial happened and I snapped because, like I said before, the patriarchy wants to rule the country the way they run their homes. And I know how they run their homes. And I don't want that for my fellow Americans. I don't want that for my friends. I don't want that for my country. And I knew I was like the only person I know who can tell. Like who's going to tell like what's what the, what that really means and decode what's happening on TV. So on the way home from Alabama that year, I talked to the producers of the Amazon documentary and they said, we want to film you. We want you to hear your story. So I was in Savannah filming like a month later and we filmed this big like nine hours of my entire story from start to finish in this big, you know, sound set. And that opportunity got the visibility of my reels and all of that happening, got the visibility, like my agent found me. She's like, I want to represent you. And then I was working on my book proposal. I mean, I was like, gonna try the thing. I was yeah. like, maybe, maybe. But I now can you had the book. wind under your sails. And they just, it just grew that way. And then my book sold at auction. It's like in preempt. And, mm. and I got the big wow. debut book deal. Amazing. Huge book deal with the big, so happy big top five publisher. Not supposed to happen to a debut. Not mm. supposed to happen to, to a nobody. And so I, I did not set out to become this thing that was happening. And well, all the I universe, am, I mean, I'm just hearing your story. It pushed you in that <laughs> direction. And this is what I've said to Sarah about where I'm hearing the parallels is like, there's a dark force that had a grip of you for X amount of years of your life. And once you're released from it, yeah, call it the light. She laughs at me when I say this, because this is like new territory for me, but like, call it this the light, call it the yes, whatever know. it is. Like Our angels. the, the cool yeah. thing that we were searching for kind of metaphorically shows up yeah. in a way yeah. and ushers Absolutely. you in into that direction. And I'm kind of like, yes. okay, I'm not arguing with it. It's the host. And, yeah. you, were, and you went back to Savannah. I did go back to that, That's a full circle because the Savannah College of Art and Design was... Yes, that was my dream to go to art school. And I put it, I, I boxed it, literally boxed it and threw things away. Fair so enough. the book is coming out. book is coming out August of 2024. Yeah. It's called A Well-Trained Wife, My Escape from Christian Patriarchy. And it's, it's going to be all the things. I mean, it's a dream that I didn't dare have for myself. Like I knew it was there. I always wanted it. Little kid, this is what I wanted. Artist, artist writer, mother, <laughs> hiker, friend was always my dream. And it's coming true in the biggest way as a result of being willing to stand in my courage, just to keep my courage and to do the thing. And, and it is light and it mm -hmm. is people coming alongside and my world is bursting open. Right. It's just, it's changing so rapidly in a way that I feel totally equipped for, mm -hmm. totally ready for. Sometimes I don't know what's coming or how to, like I need to, there's a learning curve, but I 
I feel worthy of it. I feel capable and, and in depth and ready to have the conversations. I, I totally get that feel from you and think you're going to be fine. Well, thanks. <laughs> no, totally. Thanks no, for the vote. Look, no, I've no, seen no. both. Yeah. yeah. I've seen people in trauma and just right. been like, they've got some, and like you're, you feel like you're in a really good place and. Yeah, I've it's, done a I lot of work to uh, tell my story yeah. without re-traumatizing myself. Yeah. That's always the danger of someone telling a trauma memoir. Yeah, yeah. They're going to wreck themselves in the retelling yeah. or in the criticism, the pushback. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. the, you know, you have to stand. There's so many layers of, of editing even and being willing to answer for why you wrote a, the thing that you wrote or provide yeah, yeah. a source yeah, or, yeah. you know, whatever. There's, But I have the fortitude for it. I've been yeah. through so much harder. This is fun <laughs> and easy and I have been through so I much. I totally harder. agree. Like, what are you going to do? Yell at my avatar? Like, yeah. I do not what care. What are you going to do? Spang me? <laughs> I'm not afraid of you. And I love making fun of the patriarchs. I love, like, I call them my, I put, I put IEs on the end of their name. So we got Billy and Dougie and, yeah. you know, like, I refuse to take them seriously for That's another so day. That's great. That's great. They do not, they do not get the virtue of being taken seriously. Yeah. You know what? Great point. So where, where can people find you? TiaLevings.com or at TiaLevingsWriter on all the social platforms. And any last nuggets of wisdom to pass on? If you, what, do, what do you want people to know the most? They wish that mm. you just like drop some knowledge into the world. I always say trust yourself. The universe will catch you. I'm a friend. You can reach out. I will always answer. But uh, yeah, trust yourself and, and trust the universe to catch you is a big one. Yeah. And do your work. Fucking do your work mm-hmm. because it might be the other person and you might have villains in your story. And mutual truth. You can hold two truths at one time. Yeah, yeah. You still have work to do, honey. Your work, so. but not the work. Right, exactly. Yeah, the work's the <laughs> work. a different thing. Yeah. <laughs> the work is a problem. Your work. Do your work. Exactly. Get to work. Thanks for coming to A Little Bit Called Thank oh, you, Tia. So that welcome. was awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you so you're much. You're a star. So a gem. That was great. Mwah. Mwah. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Citizens of Sound, a podcast production agency committed to developing and launching shows with gravity and depth. From conception to launch, Citizens will partner with you every step of the way, whether you're an actor, business owner, doctor, fitness coach, hairstylist, or influencer. Connection is the future of communication. Jump on board with Citizens of Sound today and start your show. Go to citizensofsound.com and follow them on Instagram. And trust me, it'll be a really good decision for you. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And thank you to Tia again, such a brave person, such a wonderful woman. Tia, this is your official invitation to move to Atlanta. We will take good care of you and we will have each I other told in. Her. I gave her the pitch. Yeah. yeah. We can have a non culty community. Oh, and don't forget, only our Patreon audience knows this. We are going to be doing a special episode with a number of cult survivors who have written memoirs on how to do that. And she will be one of them. Till next time. Thanks, everybody. Sinking down to the depths of the ocean. I'm hanging on to the weight of my love. If I let go of it all, I could leave. But I know I won't. Hope you liked this episode. Let's keep the conversation going and come hang out with us on Patreon where we keep the tape rolling each week with special episodes just for Patreon subscribers and where we get deep into the weeds of unpacking every episode of The Vow. And if you're looking for our show notes or some sweet, sweet swag or official ALBC podcast merch or a list of our most recommended cult recovery resources, visit our website at alittlebitculty.com. And for more background on what brought us here, check out Sarah's page-turning memoir. It's called Scarred true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life. It's available on Amazon, Audible, narrated by my wife, 
and at most bookstores. A Little Bit Culty is a TalkHouse podcast and a Trace 120 production. We're executive produced by Sarah Edmondson and Anthony Nippy Ames with writing, research, and additional production support by senior producer Jess Tardy. We're edited, mixed, and mastered by our rocking producer, Will Rutherford of Citizens of Sound. And our amazing theme song, Cultivated, is by John Bryant and co-written by Nigel Asselin. Thank you for listening.